Hey everybody, welcome to another episode. You may have noticed I've started a little bit differently. You may have noticed I might sound a little different. And the reason for this is that my microphone is a little bit farther away from me than normal. I'm also in a different location, so if you hear any strange noises, I'm actually at one of the offices where I work because today's the first day I have managed during this horrible, horrible pandemic to sit face-to-face -face with somebody and talk about a movie. And it's a good friend of mine, so I'm really, really excited to share this with everybody. But just wanted to let you know if it sounds a little odd, if the editing is a little bit different, if you hear me coughing for once because I usually edit that shit out, it's because we have one microphone, one room, and one track. So it's a little different, but I'm also excited to see how it goes. And without furthermore ado, let's just jump into the episode. So... Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful, and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a horror fanatic, film student, and TA at the University of Amsterdam. He has also volunteered multiple times for the Imagine Film Festival here in Amsterdam, and is a good buddy of mine, as I've already said. Beautiful greetings to Maxwell Deering. Hi, y'all. Hello, Max. Very nice to see you in person for once. Yeah, it's been... I haven't seen you since the plague. It, it is still going on, unfortunately, and uh, but it's really nice to just sit in the room with somebody that, you know, we used to see each other more often in, in person, so uh, yeah. I'm happy that we were able to do so, and thank you for being the first one. It's really cool. Thanks for inviting me on. It's uh, it's really cool. I'm yeah. very glad to see to be on here and to, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> oh, well, happy to hear it. You know, uh, we're going to have a lot of fun, uh, but before we begin... Our discussion, like every episode, I do want to kick off with a quote that relates to our topic. And we're still in the beauty section. And uh, for once, this is also a little different. Everything's different. Let's fuck it. We're going to be different. This is not a quote about beauty per se. It's actually a quote that's more fitting of the film. And I'll tell you who said it here in just a moment. But first, let's get into the quote, which is as follows. Even the most rigid culturally ingrained political, ethical, and religious preconceptions can be stripped to nothingness in the context of nothingness. The second one being with a capital in, just for people who aren't reading it. This nothingness with a capital, however, is not mere negativity and the critical denial of the status quo in any particular field. Rather, nothingness with a capital, understood as absolute nothingness, just generally, or the field of emptiness overflows with freedom and possibility and potentiality for change. Again, we'll get into that a bit later into the discussion. But first, Max, I want to talk to you a bit about your relationship with horror. I know that we met each other at the Imagine Film Festival and started talking about horror movies. We started working together on other horror projects as well. And it's probably what we talk about the most outside of superhero movies. <laughs> so when did it all start for you? And what kind of relationship do you have with the genre? So my relationship with horror, um, I can't really tell you the first time, first horror movie I saw. I have, I suppose, individual segments, memories, if you would, about my experiences. It, it's funny. So I moved out here in the Netherlands uh, in 2017 uh, with my girlfriend, who, who was Dutch. 
and uh, her parents are Dutch. And it's funny that whenever I tell them that, yeah, when I was five, six years old, I was watching Predator or Aliens. <laughs> and they look at me like I'm some type of freak because they're like, that's so fine. And I'm like, and? So, you know, for someone like me, it, I, I, it's nothing, you know. One of my favorite horror movies of all time is John Carpenter's uh, The Thing. And I can't tell you the first time I saw it, but I can tell you the first time I had my mom watch it with me. And Ooh. she was, uh, yeah, she was freaked out when we got to uh, Jed the Dog. Um, of course. So, oh. yeah, um, <laughs> as a kid growing up, I would frequently spend my Saturday nights flipping between either Toonami on Cartoon Network or the Sci-Fi Channel. And if for some of the, you some of you out there who do know, on the Sci-Fi Channel on Saturdays, they usually have like a marathon of uh, horror movies up to their premiere at 9 p.m. of whatever that horror movie was. So like I remember the premiere of Bull vs. Python was coming on. And so they had Anaconda, Anaconda 2, The Hunt for the Blood Orchid, Python, Python 2. There wasn't a Bull movie. Uh, <laughs> all types of different snake movies. If there were giant snakes, tiny snakes, you know, something like that for, you know, for the premiere of something like Bull vs. Python. You know, I probably saw titties, although not really on the sci-fi channel at a too early age because there was a film called Decoys and I was about college girls who are actually aliens who had tentacles come out of their chest, you know. Oh, and wow. They, yeah, and they drained the life out of dudes to keep them alive, you know. So that was sort of a lot of the horror I watched as a kid. Because my dad, my parents aren't really that big into it, so a lot mm -hmm. of it was on my own. And if my dad did watch it, it usually had an action tent, so Aliens, Predator, that sort of thing. But the rest of it, either I seeked it on my own, or I seeked it out on my own. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so, so then, did you primarily watch these things because of something like the Sci-Fi Channel, or say like Turner Classic Movies was a gateway for me as well? Or did you also go out and like rent them? Or it was bootleg. What happened? What were you doing as a kid? Bit of both. It was <laughs> predominantly probably sci-fi, and not even just sci-fi on Saturday. It was sci-fi throughout the week because I would I would usually watch the Sci-Fi Channel, and then also um, flip between that HBO. Uh -huh. I mean, Cartoon Network didn't have it, but you know, um, Courage. Rent, yeah, Courage, uh, Courage, Cowardly Dog. Uh, but yeah, I would also rent movies as well from uh, the movie rental place, and they had DVDs days, nine nine cent uh, DVDs for rental. Ooh, uh, yeah, mm, deals. I feel like a good deal. Um, so that was probably my experience. I think one of the first horror films I saw in theaters that I can recall. I'm pretty sure I miss it a lot, but I'm pretty sure it was Snakes on a Plane. I remember just. That was the big one that, oh, man, it's going to be this giant camp fest. And off the top of my head, that's the one I remember my dad taking me to. Granted, I did see Blade 2, so probably even earlier than that. Mm, yeah. You know, um, on my own first horror movie I saw, my dad went and saw, mm, you know what? It, <sighs> Prometheus was 2012. Yeah. Might have been Prometheus I saw on my own for the first time. Can't okay. be certain. Was really disappointed in it, but you know, uh, but I still need to check it out again, make sure I'm not crazy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for the most part, as long as I've been able to go to theaters by myself, I have done my damn darndest not just to see the big stuff, but also the tiny stuff. You know, um, that's something with me. How much I really, I love horror movies. I love genre films. I love all of it. But I am, as I'm getting older, trying to you know consume. You know, that's a really bad word. But I'm trying to ingest it all as much as I can. You know from everywhere you know the other week uh it's not horror but i watched the conformist it was an italian film about um post-war mussolini in italy um i was telling chan earlier off mic i saw uh billy wyler's the apartment so i really try and get it all but horror is my bread and butter i love it so much there's just so much good out there ooey goodness good and bad you know so <laughs> yeah 
what then is it that makes you enjoy it so much? Because you mentioned you, you know action movies, fantastic movies as well, and it seems like you have a bit of this uh, just appreciation for cinema in general. But I mean, it sounds like horror also is where you kind of cut your teeth at a very young age. Uh, is there some sort of weird comfort to it? Do you like to be scared? I'm always very curious about that. Being scared is weird. You know, I, I'm 20. I think I'm 26. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who knows uh, how old they are anymore? <laughs> I, I think I'm 26. But it's one of those things where horror movies, they both do scare and don't scare me. They don't really mm. scare you in the way that you would think when you're smaller. And it's it's funny because my girlfriend, Seuss, you know, really up until she met me, she wasn't somebody who really liked horror films or even really watched them. And so, funnily enough, our first date was actually to go see John Carpenter's The Thing in theaters. Oh. It was unintentional. It was accidental. And I don't think I have enough time to actually explain how that date went down or the build up to that date. <laughs> um, but I've been, it's been really funny. Funny for me, maybe not so great for her. Um, but I've been trying to show her some horror movies that I really like. You know, I will never know what it's like to watch Halloween for the first time. I can't remember. I've seen it so many times. Mm-hmm. But I remember her watching Halloween for the first time. And she was terrified. All she could see was the shape. He was there. He was here. He was everywhere. She couldn't see for six months. She couldn't sleep. She terrified of it. And bad as that was for her, it was very enlightening for me. Not in the sense of I'm evil and I like doing these things to her other people. But like, it's really cool to see those sort of reactions. And so it's, you know, for a woman who is a bit older than me, it's it's cool. It's like, damn, you're scared of the shape. Like, this is nothing, you know. We have the new Scream movie coming out and people are really excited. And I actually recently finally watched all of the sequels. I'd seen the first one so many times years ago when I was younger. But finally watched two, three, and four. And I liked them, but I I can't stress to you how much if you die by Ghostface, you deserve it. You can't let this guy trip and fall and you don't just kick the <laughs> shit out of him. I don't care if he has a knife, you have feet. Like I, I joke on Twitter about it, but um what uh pushes me toward horror is I really love how inventive it is and how mm-hmm. man, you, sometimes they have the shittiest budgets and they somehow stretch that shit to a mile and it looks good and sometimes it doesn't, but I really appreciate that imagination and there's so much you can do with it that not to say you can't do with other genres, but there's just, there's a lot to explore, especially like with the film we're talking about here that we'll get to later, but it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, I don't know if it's been talked about yet malignant on this podcast. I know that our host, uh, Eats that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, I, I I do like to chomp down on some malignant every now and then. Uh, it is a very wonderful feast. I have not spoken about it on at least not in this season or for an actual like interview version of the episode, but on um, one of the early prototype episodes of Gab, uh, Good, Agreeable, and Beautiful. I did actually cover malignant uh, briefly. Maybe it'll happen again. Who knows? Maybe somebody will bring it in. Nice. Hey, I like I love malignant, but something with like malignant. It's so interesting to watch that as a movie, not just it's this love letter to, you could argue, old um, Hammer Horror films and Giallo films, but it's this microcosm of all these different things. And even like 90s uh, House on Haunted Hill, like this Mm -hmm. sort of campiness, like in the opening five minutes. And you look at that movie and you look how wild it is. And you look at it from the perspective of James Wan, who just made Aquaman, made a billion plus dollars at the box office. And he basically went to WB and said... I just made Aquaman. I made that a billion dollar property. I get to do what I want. And they're like, all right, fine. And he puts that in, 
you know, man, cross your fingers for a malignant sequel, but it's incredible that somebody with that kind of clout, you know, and Aquaman's a very fun film, but for someone to do that and still go back and make something that's fun, and you can see the lessons learned from, you know, what he got from Aquaman and even Furious 7, mm-hmm. and what he put on that, it's, there's so much there, and I love that, and it's genuinely creative. Like, if you have Twitter or you have any social media, I love looking at behind the scenes and how they get those animatronics to work, how they get blood to spray, it's 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 so much fun it it's messy and it terrifies you know people yeah but it is it's so much fun i love it so much there's genuine creativity and love in horror films and genre films it is it's beautiful (laughs) yeah i agree yeah it's one of the things that always kind of appealed to me as well even before i got into horror films so much i you know like a lot of people have started with literature but even then it's just seeing how the tropes that are associated with the genre aren't necessarily as dedicated to the grounded reality that you're trying to put together. Some people do that, and I think that's where we get from trope to cliche, that you see a lot of horror cliches pop up, and people like to riff on those, tear them apart. That's why Scream even exists, Mm. is Wes Craven going, like, oh, for fuck's sake, can we just make it a little different and just make it smarter? You can do the same thing, and you can do the same thing infinitely, as long as you're doing it in a unique way. And horror really allows for that because I think every genre does have some room for it. But if you look at high fantasy or sci-fi, they do box themselves into limitations on just the scale of what has to be in it for it to qualify as this genre. Whereas horror comes more from an emotion and from an attempt, from a pace. There's a lot more in the way it's filmed and just the, you know, is it even trying to scare you kind of a thing? I yeah. think that's where, you know, it's very thin what it's trying to do, yeah. but you see it, you know it when you see it kind of a thing. Yeah. It's like porn. You know, there was that phrase when they were having the whole anti-porn uh, campaigns back in like the 60s or something. And then the senator who was trying to say it was devastating to people, they're like, well, what is por- How can we tell uh, an erotic thriller from something that's pornographic or a model photo shoot from being a pornographic photo spread and he was just like i just know it when i see it yeah bullshit answer but it does apply to some things yeah. and with horror i think it's one of those things that that's the short of it if you want to give the bullshit answer i suppose <laughs> yeah uh but yeah no that's really cool and I, I love that you know hearing that passion it's it's always really wonderful to experience and y'all you know experiencing in the room is just oh, mm, 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 delectable so so good um you know what let's let's harness that passion into the topic for today because I have a feeling we're going to have quite a bit to say about this film. So, Max, what movie will we be talking about today? The Empty Man. The Empty Man. Before we get into it, let's quickly check what IMDb said this movie was about and see if we agree or not. And it's a very... It's a one-sentence synopsis... Oh, boy. ...that says... On the trail of a missing girl, an ex-cop comes across a secretive group attempting to summon a terrifying supernatural entity. That's actually my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, that's a good synopsis. That's a good. Yeah. That's a better synopsis than the one trailer they put out. Fair. It's just one of those things where I'm like, you're not wrong. No. You you have given me correct information, but if you watch the film, I mean. Despite being the majority of the film, I find the whole ex-cop story not even the story. Well, I think it's interesting. I, having viewed it, watched it for the third time last night with my girlfriend. It is the way to rope someone like her in. Not to say that I tricked her into it, but like, 
she loves she loves detective stories. And so when I right. pitched her that, you know, oh, it's the next cop. It's more it's the Empty Man is really good. And it helps that it has David Fincher behind the scenes. I believe mm-hmm. he's producing. Yes. Um, and it, it plays more like a seven or a Zodiac with those supernatural elements. So I do think that is a good enough synopsis that obviously you're doing a disservice if you just pull somebody off the street and you tell them about it because that doesn't sound all that that doesn't sound as enticing. But I think it's it's good enough. Could be a bit better, but it is I my opinion I think it's better than the trailer they put out because that trailer they put out initially was not great. <laughs> I also read a little bit about that, too. Uh, Director and writer David Pryor had stated that what they were attempting to do was actually get picked up by something like Blumhouse. Mm. And they had a studio already lined up. I forget which studio it was, but, you know, this is a movie that's really hard to find now outside of just, like, bargain bin stream service. just like thrown in the the bottom of their services with no celebration of any kind yeah but uh it's easier to find now than when it came out but the problem was the studio just backed out of the project when they saw what they were actually making Mm -hmm. but he was really trying to just make this really dark brooding sinister film about nihilism essentially and postmodern thought processes and wanted to market it as a very mainstream B movie, so he really wanted to like the Empty Man, the name of it. it's like the Bye Bye Man, Slender yeah. Man, you know, and it evokes these things as yeah. well, and it makes you roll your eyes. <laughs> exactly, he wanted you to kind of come in with that, you know, disarmed kind of thing. I remember Insidious did this to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, it disarms you at first, and you're like, okay, well, it's one of these. Oh, it's the guys from Saw, and it's another singular titled movie, and uh, ooh, it's a bad word. It means so much, and how bad it could be. They they put out a trailer that makes it look like it's like almost like a kids horror film, and then I didn't sleep when I saw it. So you know, like uh, I think that's what they kind of did here. Mm. But I'm happy it came out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I am happy with that. But yeah, um, I do think maybe to an extent with the choosing name like the Empty Man um, might have been to its detriment. I mean, I love it, but like, it is it is funny when you look at where it was when we first got glimpses of this, and then where we are now after mm-hmm. seeing after having finally watched it. Um, so I recently did my thesis um, about horror movie distribution in the Netherlands. Okay, and I, I wasn't I was able to talk to a number of people around town. Um, unfortunately, one of them was not Fox because uh, Fox and Disney are now one. Um, but uh, I did get the thing from a quote from Thrillist where David Pryor was talking to the guy from there. And what was really interesting was that, you know, this film pretty much sat on the shelf for a while. I think it might have been, it was supposed to originally release in 2019 mm-hmm. and got a little bit of release in 2020, October of 2020. Not too many people saw it and those who did didn't care for it. And it came on streaming and it was big. Uh, well, big in the sense that a, I think most people who have seen it, it, it it's... I think it's a good example of a modern cult classic. Um, I think th- there are many films that we see nowadays, many horror films that we see where they really try to want to be cult before having to actually achieve the status. Mm-hmm. And The Empty Man, I feel like, is a film that really fits that mold of, say, like John Carpenter's The Thing, where it came out. Uh, I mean, it is unfortunate that it came out during a pandemic, but it came out, people who did see it trashed on it, and then... A few months after it's released, people turn, they're like, what, what are you talking about? This film is great. It's amazing. Um, and so I, marketing aside, I don't even think that's the fault of uh, David Pryor or anyone else. Um, 
it is a very solid film, but and I do think it really deserves that status as a cult classic, literally, <laughs> in some respects. <laughs> I, I um, do like that. If that's what they were going for, then you have that extra like tongue-in-cheek nature to it. Yeah. Of like it's a cult film. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, for those who aren't too aware of the film, or maybe it's hazy for you, maybe you've uh, been thinking about The Empty Man too often, uh, what what would you say is the general gist of the film? And, like, you know, what what is it? In terms of a synopsis? Or... Yeah, very brief, though. Like, you know, because you said that the synopsis applies, but is that really... I don't know if I would deviate too far from it, because to talk more about it would necessarily, not necessarily spoil it, but, like, mm-hmm. in terms of... If you want to watch a very unique horror film um, that is, for one thing, we rarely get horror movies that are two hours and 16 minutes. You know, it is a lengthy film, but it breezes by. Um, So I I wouldn't actually stray too far from the IMBD quote, but I would say a um, ex-cop is hired by uh, his neighbor to find her missing daughter. And along the way, he uncovers a secret sect of people doing real Lovecraftian shit that they shouldn't be messing with. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, that's pretty similar then. So then, okay, as I asked with everybody, when I approached you for this, you you, you thought about it for a bit, but I had already known from you, you had said to me when the movie came out, he's like, have you seen The Empty Man? I was like, no, you have to see The Empty Man. It's going to be your shit. I was like, well, I'll get to it. And then I started the podcast, and now I've gotten to that point where it's like, if I haven't seen it, probably just wait until it comes up on an episode, unless I'm bored and <laughs> have the time. And in this case, uh, I was like, hey, I'm sure it's going to come up. And the moment I was like, hey, hey, uh, you want to fill a spot in? You're just like, The Empty Man. Damn it, The Empty Man. So what about this movie made you go beauty, horror, Empty Man? I'm going to just be real simple. Uh, the Empty Man is like a really fine steak. And the best wine to go with that is John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, interesting. I I haven't I haven't double billed it yet, but all I could think of was when I was done with the Empty Man, I was like, man, that would go great within the Mouth of Madness. And I'm I mean, uh, they're not the exact same film, but you couldn't watch that and not tell me like, ah, that would go great. With, I mean, very thematically and similarly, mm-hmm. they are Lovecrafting films about these men going down these rabbit holes and. Uh, going crazy and finding out the depths of not only themselves but of the world around them and so for me one of my favorite genres sometimes horror is lovecraftian it's mm-hmm. why the thing is one of my favorite is if not one of my favorite my favorite film of all time it is impeccable but we're not here about the thing um uh, <laughs> not yet but um I-, I love lovecraftian horror and this is probably one of the better not just one of the better lovecraftian films but it's also it's not done cheaply um, it's not, it doesn't have like, uh, it, it doesn't have a really terrible budget, you know? Um, it's, it's really well done. It's structured very similarly to the, uh, works to an extent. Uh, yeah. And so for me, I, I really love, love crafting horror. I love that madness. And it's also so hard, uh, from a visual standpoint with film, with film to really show that kind of madness because a lot of people historically from what I've read, um, showing love crafting horror on screen, uh, is just not something people are very interested in because mm-hmm. how can you show the undescribable? Um, and so I think to an extent, something like The Empty Man or In the Mouth of Madness, it's easier to show these men going crazy than what is this indescribable thing. And so what I find beautiful about it is it's so many things wrapped up in the one. 
Um, there's a bit of, you could argue, giallo or slasher, even though it's for one sequence in the film. It's, you know, it's a nice little police procedural to an extent. Mm-hmm. It's got crazy-ass cult members who act like New Age medicine people. <laughs> um, and it's got one of the most relatable moments, uh, one of the very few rare relatable moments, not just in horror movies, but movies general, where spoilers uh, towards the back end of the film, the character, he sees a group of people and he sees them motioning towards him. And like any smart person, he says, yeah, no. And bolts. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel that. I mean, you should have left hours beforehand. Yes. But like, yes, that's what you... Time to go. You know, it's like Julian from the Halloween 2018. He's like, hey, there's something happening up there. I'm out. Bye. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, be gone. I'm not, I'm not dealing with this. <laughs> this is what you can tell the, the, the guy was in the movie world. Because I swear to you, if I had been on this investigative journey and, and found this you know shack and all the stuff that I needed as soon as I walked out if I would have found all these fucking people doing that around that campfire I'd be like typical and just left like of course they're fucking here of course they're doing this and I'm gonna get my car before they notice that I'm here even better <laughs> yeah. stop while you're ahead I was amazed he's just like oh, what are they doing <laughs> are the cultists acting culty <laughs> it was it was bizarre what he was doing yeah uh, yeah I I love a good cosmic horror film. My thesis right now is also... I say right now because it changes all the time. Uh, but it's on the beauty of cosmic horror. And so I'm also looking at those movies like The Thing, Colorado Space, uh, Alien. And I, this one's going to be on that list somewhere as well. I, I, it's it's one of those movies that when you give the synopsis to somebody, especially when you think of like cult films, and I don't mean cult as in their reputation, but cultist movies... The idea of cosmic horror doesn't always fit in. I know that Lovecraft used a lot of those tropes in his work, especially the whole Cthulhu mythos. The, the Call of Cthulhu itself is all about weird cults in, in the bayou and stuff. But outside of him, and especially in the modern day, most people focused far more on just the average Joe stumbling on like an interdimensional problem, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. And I like that this movie does both. They kind of get that out of the way at the uh, the whole intro segment when you see the was it four of them? Yeah, the four kids who go to the Himalayas and get fucked by the Empty Man. Basically, uh, they they discover something that they shouldn't find, and then it all kind of continues from there. Then we get to the police procedural, and that's where we get into your more cultist kind of film. And uh, yeah, it's it's a nice breath of fresh air to kind of see cosmic horror in a film that's just kind of showing all the different tropes and references to the origins of the whole genre without really succumbing to the problems of them Mm. for one like i mean let's just say it out loud i mean love lovecraft was a was a racist bastard he's a piece of shit it's an unfortunate thing that he wrote the stories that he wrote but knowing all of this about him it's also pretty clear why he wrote it in the first place you know he's seeing otherness everywhere entities beyond humanity wherever they're walking around he could see a fucking cat and just be like, Nyalahotep, and be really pissed off about it. Which is funny. You Which mentioned is, that. Yeah, it's yeah. in the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's in the movie. Yeah. It was one of those things. I'm like, that's definitely one of those things. I So there's a wrestling term that I love called popping. I don't know if they if, it, if it's used in just normal crowds and stuff, but you pop the crowd, basically. So when you have like a wrestler who's on the mic and they say something, you go, you have that, oh, shit. Or people are like, yay, said the catchphrase. It's popping an audience. And I popped real hard when I saw this Nyalahotep empty man thing. I was like, oh, Crawling chaos it, is here. It's a tentacle. <laughs> it was and it, just the tentacle, too, yeah. the one they chose. So, yeah, if you're a Lovecraft fan and 
But just cosmic horror just in general. Cosmic yeah. horror. Let's put it that way. But I mean, also, if you're a Lovecraft fan, and you you know, despite all the problematic parts of it, and you love the works, and you know the drawings and stuff from the '60s and the '70s, oh, you're gonna be in for a treat. They did their research on this, and they definitely were just like, here, here's some candy for all the yeah. fans out there. And the and this all kind of comes into play in the film itself and in the narrative because the big. Think, okay, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to get into it. I think this is going to be the meat and potatoes of this. So you want to spoil it? Oh, we're going to spoil this movie. Sorry. Um, it's just part of how it goes. But um, we're going to try to talk a bit about the empty man, the concept and this kind of religion that was built around him in the film. And by nature, the film itself is an exploration of like cosmic horror tropes, but also the dissection of trope versus content, if you will, because it's like origins. So they use a lot of philosophy in the film. They use a lot of references to Lovecraft, a lot of references to John Carpenter, and just all over the place. And at the same time, it's cliche, but it isn't because it walks that line. Like yeah. you have some cliches in there. I mean, The Empty Man, we mentioned the title alone is... So even the kids on the bridge, it reminded me of like, oh, you do a little ritual and the Slender Man appears. So they use these cliches, but also more show people's very irresponsible behavior in the creation of cliches. Because, you know, we have very deep philosophical conversations being had throughout this film. But it's just basically Scientology mumbo jumbo is kind of what we're given. And you see this a lot in movies anyway. And I know in interviews prior has also mentioned that that was kind of what he was going for. Yeah. Like he he didn't want to get too much into it because like, well, there's interpretation involved. So I don't want to ruin that for anybody. But let's get into this a little bit. So um, when when we're thinking of the empty man, what 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 do you get from it, him, them, whatever? Like, what is the empty man? How does that work according to what you understand from the film? Well, if we're going off the literal interpretation, mm-hmm. the very end of the film, again, apologies if you haven't seen it, spoilers, beware. Um, your main, The main character played by... Uh, James Badgedale. James Badgedale from Iron Man 3 and, and uh, Spectre, not not the James... Spectral, it's a Netflix uh, ghost zombie film, right, whatever. Right. Um, played by James Badgedale. He is a... Um, he is an empty man. He is a literal empty man. He throughout the film he finds something called a tulpa, and I believe it has roots in Buddhist thought, mm-hmm. where it's um, thought equals uh, plus form equals flesh. I yes, that's how it goes in the film and and the actual definition. And what he finds is that from the moment the film from the moment you meet him after those first twenty minutes with the four hikers, when you meet James Baddiel's character, you see him on the bridge. That is his first time. That's his first time existing ever. He never existed. He existed prior to that moment as a creation, but his own agency and all of that, that's the first time anybody he interacts with doesn't happen. His own history, did he did he cheat on his wife? Did he accidentally get his, you know, family killed? Never happened. All of it was a creation by the Pontifex Institute, this cult, to create a a empty man, a vessel, empty vessel of which to carry this wave to bring forth they don't actually name it. They say him in between, I believe. Um, well, I think just the empty man. Like they, they've kind of like in the sense similar to the quote. I'm not going to get too much into the quote right now, but you know how it has the difference between nothingness with like a lower n and nothingness with a capital n. Yeah. So I, I feel like the empty man in this case is you have the empty man, the vessel. Yeah. Who is the conduit of the empty man? Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. So his purpose is to bring forth this creature from beyond. Um, 
And I mean, that's my interpretation of it. And I think that's incredible because it's like, holy shit, you can't trust anything you've seen. And they're constantly trying to ask, you know, throughout the film, do you, uh, do you believe what you see? Are you sure this is your reality? Are you, <laughs> and all it makes me think of is Sam Neill from In the Mouth of Madness. This is not reality, not reality, not reality. Screams on a bus, you know. <laughs> um, and, and, and yeah, and so his world is shattered because ultimately having all these truths revealed to him, all it does is basically open him up to this thing there and it's this sort of Stephen root the um he's not the cultist leader that he meets at the pond of Pegasus, but he is the speaker it's something that he really speaks to he's like you're going through this repetition you're going through these things again and again and it's to be made null and void and you roll your eyes at it but the point is and i have it written down here these cliches they're profound collective and enduring truths decontextualized and they're kind of made uh bare or empty Mm-hmm. by repetition mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when he has all of that all that repetition the repetition of his dreams um or his guilt i should say his nightmares and the repetition of his days all of that just compounds him boom he is an empty man and i mean it's a very bleak ending but like it is that was the point you know uh, yeah i mean a lot of these movies would have gone for this kind of pseudo bleak pseudo empowering kind of thing especially mm-hmm. if he had a more feminine touch to it and I like how this is like, this is the white guy version. Just fuck it. Deal with it. You're controlled by the system. Yeah. Is basically what this movie's kind of speaking out to people. It really deconstructs and decontextualizes, as you were saying, not only just cliche and trope, but what it means to be empty. And I, I, I was really taken by it doing it in a literal sense with this evil entity, or I guess you can't even say evil, this powerful entity that we don't understand. And at the same time, if you read it on the level of like, well, obviously it's a filmmaker making a film and there's a lot of like talking at the audience in this, this film, it has two levels then on that, on that part of it. I would find that, you know, the first would be film language. So just talking about the way we discuss film, Mm. the whole process that I have with the podcast or most podcasters would have, you know, it's very empty to just say, oh, very good cosmic movie. It's just like every other Lovecraft movie ever made. Uh, has this trope, that trope, that trope. Tick, tick, tick. It ticks all the boxes. Therefore, it is a cosmic horror film. That's yeah. what you hear in a lot of podcasts as well. They're just kind of talking about how much money it made or if it is what it is. And, that you know, if you talk about tropes, if you just repeat them mindlessly over and over and over and over again, they lose meaning. They yeah. become empty. I yeah. like that there's that kind of commentary in it, but then you have the deeper commentary of what you were talking about of doing your life over and over and over yeah. and eventually just going to work and coming home and watching your favorite TV show and going to sleep and waking up and going to work. and That whole cycle does lose meaning over time. And before you know it, it's 10 years later and you feel like you haven't really lived essentially. Um, I don't know if that is stated very strongly or if I'm just picking that up, but it's just something I kind of get from this, this this cycle, this emptiness, especially when you have this allegory of the character like this, who is this like very white bread kind of character. Yeah, he's, he's your typical hard-boiled cop, and that's fine. Like, mm-hmm. I, I love the trope, you know. It's a trope. Yeah, yeah and it, it sure. fits. It works. You know, what works about the trope in this instance is that like a cosmic horror tale or like a Lovecraftian tale, this trope is part of the reason as to why he is going, why his fate ends up the way that it is. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he 
it's interesting because I'm curious what I had on this third rewatch. I've really wondered what if he didn't blow into that bottle on the bridge? I don't think that's what set it off because mm-hmm. he already had day one prior to that. But if he didn't, would everything have gone the same way? Would it have been different? You know, um, but I think ultimately the film, it doesn't really matter because his fate is his fate at the end of the film. Um, yeah. It's an interesting <laughs> way to look at predestination as well in that you're given freedom to move around and, and take your own actions and think for yourself, but not really. Yeah. And in this case, I do feel that they kind of, in that final scene with Amanda, she does, you know, know every little answer to every little thing that he would say. So I do feel that there is probably a, there's no way in hell he wasn't going to blow the bottle. Yeah. But even if he did, there's just this whole, this is what you were meant to be. This is where you're going to go because this is where we the path we put you on and there's just no way off of it the guardrails are too high you're stuck on the road basically and there's a lot of horror in that just thinking about being this character his name is uh james yeah james the sombra so if you are james then you just the idea that nothing that you do is really for you I can't even fathom it. I hate the idea of predestination. I'm, I'm too rebellious. I'm too uh, too weird and queer for that. So, like, you know, can't tell me what to do or how to feel. <laughs> and you can tell me all you want to, but I feel like I'm doing my own thing. But I'd lo- I do love it when a horror movie is like, are you, though? Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> you think it. It's Which, kind of a take on, like, The Matrix. Yeah, I was going to say that, but I was like, I, I didn't. I thought you said you didn't really watch him or you didn't care for him, so I didn't know. So <laughs> I, oh, well. well. Edit out that hot tape. No, don't. Uh, don't don't keep it. Let them know. <laughs> no. Okay, so The Matrix has never been my favorite franchise, sure. but that first one is a perfect film. I actually watched it again recently since the new one came out. Haven't seen uh, the new one yet, but I wanted to see it with the new lens. I never really got the trans allegory at the time. S- watching it again, I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's so in your face that that's why you couldn't see it, I suppose. Just like, well, lo and behold, you know, like being trans. So... <laughs> It's really powerful, really well-made movie. Beat for beat. Like, yeah, this is just a good movie. I remember everything. I don't like the other two so much, but I think I'm going to appreciate the narrative a little bit more. It's just that it was one of those movies that I didn't need more of. Fair. So no, I yeah. just liked it so much when that first one came out. And you know how it goes. Other people can kind of spoil the fun a little bit. And then getting into what we're talking about a little bit with at least what Pryor kind of put into The Empty Man when people start just saying buzzwordy shit about a, a known property I don't know if you've had that too but you just kind of sit in the room sometimes like yeah and like what else you did you more. get out of the movie like yeah. you're you're ready to go and they're just like yeah leather well I think I do Morpheus. think to an extent that is dependent on it is largely dependent on what I'm watching I do think Empty Man really did get the shaft. Like, that was one of those rare cases where the people who watched it initially, they, I, I don't know why they gave it the bad reviews that they did, but clearly they missed something that the rest of us didn't because we loved it. Or at least most people I follow in my circles loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think to an extent there are movies where, uh, what was I watched? Uh, sometimes you just watch something and it's bad, you know? Like you, And you can only give those rote and those tropey things to say because... Sometimes there's not all that much is there is to say. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. But I'm saying like even a movie that somebody might love. Mm-hmm. Say, you know, you love The Thing, for instance. Sure. Now, I know people who love The Thing as well. And they're probably only going to be able to tell you about tentacle monsters, fire, and snow. Yeah. And there's so much more to the movie than, it's, you know, it's all about paranoia. Yeah. It's about 
non-toxic masculinity to an extent. You know, it's really a bunch of dudes who are trying to form like a family. Grown-ass men. Grown-ass men. <laughs> and just also trying to survive and, and taking care of each other in the best way they can. And it's not it's not a sensitive movie by any means, but there's a lot to dissect out of it. Sure. And it as a product from the Reagan era as well. It just, there's stuff there. Yeah. But it's just, that's what I kind of have with The Matrix is that at, for a while the, the bros kind of took it over about, yeah, that camera shot. So people, if they, if I'm in a conversation and people tell me about the Matrix and how much they love it because of the graphics or because Neo's an awesome badass or because of the martial arts, and I'm like, I know all this. I was there when the movie came out. I was there when they hyped up all these things. That's all the marketing stuff that was in the movie. And so, but I'm like, yeah, but what, what about the questions that are in it? Or if you get into the whole like, free your mind, man. Like, what does that mean? Hey, what is my mind not free of? All I'm gonna say is, if you, if that's what you liked, maybe you'll like. The new one, but I know there's a certain Star Wars movie you don't care for. I won't name it on this podcast, so may, it could go either way. But what you, I'm just, but what you just said though makes me think you. I think you would really like the new one, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm I don't know there. either. I, I, don't get me wrong. There is something to be said for the aesthetics of the Matrix and uh, just everything about it. Yeah. But I'm just talking about it soured on me after a while because it was like a yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It felt like an easy answer sure. for for things when we had more movies coming out. I'd say, I think, like, maybe 10 or so years ago, it would have been easy to, if, like, somebody said The Dark Knight to me, mm. I would have felt like, well, what other movies have you seen? Because you're not wrong. It's a great movie. But at a certain point, I'm like, there are other action movies than The Dark Knight, which are really great, that have come out in the last 10 years. So it just, it was more like, how are they discussing it? And what are they telling me they get out of it? Mm-hmm. And if I just hear the same thing over and over and over again, I just kind of check out of the conversation yeah. and just feel my feelings. Repetition. Repetition. <laughs> loses meaning. Exactly. And who knows? Maybe The Empty Man turns into one of those movies that people are like, that skeleton, though. It's not that freaky. I, it's beautiful, though. I will say. So when you yeah. told me about this movie, and I had seen so many other people talking about how much of an aesthetic feast this movie is. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's, it's so gorgeous. It's in the soundscapes as well. Everything about it was really, really powerful. But I was like, okay, so I knew it was going to fit. I saw that one screenshot. I'm like, I hope this is not a spoiler. I'm so happy it was like the first five minutes of the yeah. movie. Um, and there's so much more to it. I will say that it's probably the most... Very impressive image in the film, other than some of the death scenes in it. But that one's like the most iconic. That's the that's more the sure. word I'm looking for. Like yeah. if you want an iconic image from the Empty Man, it's either that or the hooded figure. I would say. I think the I will say the hooded figure. If there's a part of that repetition, going back to that and that in the marketing that went into, oh, it's like the Bioman <clears throat> or the Slender Man. I would definitely say it's him. He, all. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but all I could see, I remember in marketing, I'm like, isn't this just the tall, dark man, that movie with Jessica Biel? But oh, the tall man, yeah. <laughs> the tall man, yeah. I was like, isn't this just that? I was like, oh, okay. Pretty much. But, uh, no, but yeah, no, the skeleton, it is a, is a very, very, it is a creepy skeleton. That'd be rough. You know, all I know is if I fell down in a cavern and my friend said, if you touch me, you'll die, I'd be like... I don't know you. He's dead. Let's go. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. <laughs> Our friendship has been nice, and I will let somebody else take you out of this hole. No. And if they do, I don't They're know gonna them stay. You're like, you're done. No. You're no. Done. He, he, we cannot recover the body. Get over it. Let's I go. I don't know what happened to Paul. It, shit. That bridge was really rickety. You know? <laughs> you'll, you'll get like some bolt cutters and cut the bridge just to make it look like something happened. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to my baby boy? 
He fell. He, he was fell. an idiot. He jumped. He's gone. <laughs> I don't know. Paul's gone. Uh, uh, sorry. But, yeah, okay. the movie is, it has such a strong presence visually that I was just really drawn into it the whole way through. Really enjoyed that. So I knew going into it is going to be that way. I was shocked with the content of it. Mm-hmm. Just from so those of you who listen to the podcast regularly, you 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 know you know the point of the podcast. You know the whole basis of this. So you understand what my research is. Currently, it's about aesthetics. It's about beauty, emotions. I've always kind of worked within emotions, but back at like the early days of my master's, even around the end of my bachelor's, I was really focused on nihilism and pessimism and the sublime. Those are the things I was... I was in a horrible depression at that time too, so I guess I was just trying to like mentally survive. Make use of it. Yeah, exactly. Try to see if there was any sort of... Just, yeah, use. I think that's the best word for it. Just Is there a function to this? And can I just at least, you know, eat and go to sleep? That's all I really needed to do at that time. And when all of these things that I knew were kind of coming into this movie, there's so much of it in this movie, that sense of cliche hit me even more strongly. Because you hear this stuff in movies like this a lot. Mm. And it's in Lovecraft as well. But, you know, the whole meaninglessness of life and the void. They even have the cliche of yeah. you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back. Yeah, they, they, that whole scene where he walks into the AA meeting. And it's a great, it's a really great moment of not just this character. He is literally living, the audience is living through him because he's just like, you know, what is this new age bullshit? Please, like, I can't believe I'm sitting here. Just give me some answers. But if you look into the abyss... Does it stare back? Is there an ab- I'm I'm done. I'm leaving. I can't do it. You know, he yeah. really, he really, it really like, it, and it's funny because the film purposely wants you to feel what he's feeling and you feel it because you're dead. Anybody in that situation would look, these people on crazy pills. I'm, I, I look, man, I, I came here for something else, you know? Um, and this is something that pissed me off when I was watching this movie at first because I was sitting here like, this movie feels too smart to be doing this mm-hmm. and it better be. Because you're right, it sounds crazy because it's cliche. You know the cliches, but if you haven't studied the material, it's just cliche shit that yeah. people say. And they don't even know what they're talking about. That's why it's cliche. Like, what does that mean that if you look into the abyss, it looks back at you? Well, a lot of that has to do with things like the more you look into the concept of nothing, the more of nothing you start to feel and the yeah. more you lose yourself. Yeah. And in Buddhist philosophy, that's a good thing. That's the way to get to nirvana is because you strip yourself away from societal pressures and any preconceived religious notions that have been kind of pushed upon you. You just are. That's all you need to do to reach nirvana. It's just this ecstasy of being. Mm. And on, on in the Nietzschean sense, where the you know quote actually comes from, you know he was he took the white guy approach and 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 you know especially the German white guy approach and was really just like. Don't lose yourself. It's it's really a dark pathway. It's 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 heavy. This is like male depression kind of stuff. And I was really eating it up too at the time. It's like, yes, feed me more. You know, we we had chicken earlier, and it's just like the chicken I was eating. It's like more, 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 just a feast on this. Uh, and it does feed a depression. It really does. It kind of mm. keeps you down in it if you're misinterpreting what's being said. But if you see it in a movie or in a book, you're just kind of like, mm-hmm, I get it. The abyss. Or, you know, nothingness. What does this entail? And so I was getting really freaking angry the whole way through because I was like, why are you using these quotes? Meaning you've read the book 
apart from this one quote, now I will say that's a bad example, the Abyss one, because everybody kind of knows this cliche, but there are other things that he's talking about as well that come from, I don't know if you've heard of uh, the Kabbalion or uh, Hermes. So Hermes is an old ancient Greek philosopher who, you know, it's it's one of those cases where they have a name for whoever wrote it, but we don't really know who wrote it. Mm-hmm. Could have actually been 12 people over, you know, decades for all we know. But the yeah. point is there's a whole philosophy that's called Hermetics that is kind of the foundation for most Western religions these days. So, you know, Islam, Christianity, uh, even some uh, atheism, Scientology, they have a lot of their principles in that uh, kind of spiritual sense that kind of come from this, but it is stripped from a sense of religiosity or religiousness. Mm. So there's no, you know, it's not a monotheistic thing where you're like supporting a deity or even multiple deities. It's just more about yourself and your place within the universe. So like I said, even atheism uses a lot of their philosophy. And in that book, you have a lot of this discussion of the meaninglessness of things and also duality of things. And if you, you know, a lot of these things have been cliched. I'm sure you know just from the film existing as above, so below. Mm, Yeah. So a lot of people want to put that in a very Christian sense that, you know, because there's a heaven, there's a hell. As the movie does, you know, hell is opened up. And, hey, I haven't seen it. Oh, well, that's that is not a spoiler. It's <laughs> oh. really just about them going to the Paris catacombs. No, I know. It's, it's one of those films that it looked you know? bad, but I've seen last year's people were like, oh, it's so good. And I'm like, I'll get to it. <laughs> but, Another hot take on my end. But... <laughs> it wasn't my thing, but I can see why people enjoy it. It's a nice schlocky found footage movie mm. that, you know, that it's more of that kind of the Indiana Jones vibe to it. So it's just more about having fun than it is about you taking the found footage very seriously. Mm. In the context of The Empty Man, though, you know, so they're taking these cliches and these concepts, and I just happen to have read a lot of these things for either my studies or my own traumatic like research, I suppose. Sure. And was really, really hoping that what it was going to do was just show this cult using this stuff and using it out of context and building a religion around it, and The Empty Man just kind of fucking them up. Mm. Or even just letting them down. I love when you have that, when you have cultists who are linked to this horrible thing and you, you've witnessed it in the movie. So you do know that the the ultimate being... The terror is there. It's yes, real. Yes, it's real. So you know irrefutably it's real. You actually have more knowledge than the cultists do because they're on faith. You are on knowledge. Yeah. And then they're not chosen or nothing happens or whatever. You know, it's your protagonist who actually gets to be in the, you know, face-to-face with this thing. And it kind of happens, but they're still very much in control by the end of the film. So I had to, like, swallow that just a little bit. But hearing the interviews and and reading, you know, what Pryor's been saying, it does seem like that was intentional, though, to have this, for people like me, to kind of boil my blood the whole way through because I can't stand when people really distill those sorts of thought processes and philosophies without really sharing what they actually mean and just saying the words. Mm. It is language that's really difficult to understand, but that's academia. That's all philosophy. People kind of speak in code, and back in the day, you had to. I mean, (laughs) post-soothsayer, if you were saying stuff that sounded like it was opening up people's minds and making them think for themselves, you were getting burned. Simple. So you code it a little bit, you make it a little hard to understand, you make sure that the elite can only understand it. <laughs> and then this is what happens when people kind of get their hands on it without any guidance, they just throw it on pages. Now I am happy to see that this movie, seem, or at least the filmmakers seem to know a little bit more about 
what they were doing. And yeah. so it's very intentionally like, ha, 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 rip a page out, throw it in the story. Rip a page here, throw it in there. Well, it is adapted from a comic book, but I, I do think from what I read that the film itself is a very loose adaptation. Yes. Um, I, yeah. I think if I recall, now I could be wrong, so anybody who's read the graphic novel, please don't get in the in my email and start yelling at me or anything. But if, if I recall, the graphic novel is more about that pro, like prologue kind of oh. thing that that's more the empty man story of just making you feel it okay and then the story about james is more what comes from the director oh fair enough unless there is more to that as well i don't know but like it, it also feels a little different from each other because you yeah. have the effects it's, and stuff. it's because I, I read about it and don't shoot me i'm working on it there's <laughs> millions of movies i haven't seen the exorcist but something that was really jarring at least first time watching it is Oh, it's in the Himalayas, and I'm like, this isn't a movie, and it's 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 one of these films where it is a very bold swing of them to just take 20 minutes out of your time for nothing but setup, and then you get title card, and then you get the movie you were you were shown in trailers. Yeah. It's very bold, and I I I really like a swing like that. You know, it's it's set piece, it's mood, and it is tropey, um, but it's also shocking in its own way, especially once you get to, to uh, at the end of that 20 minute scene. Um, yeah, no, I, I I I like that. I um, if that was if that is all the graphic novel is, it, assuming that it you know is almost that B for B, it's really effective. It's really good. Mm-hmm. It's very jarring, um, and then the rest of the film really carries that really well. You know the whole way forward, um, and it, it it is funny how it really plays with all of these um, dramas and tropes. You know, with the whole empty man is going to be summoned. Um, oh look. Dumbass kids on a bridge. Hey guys, if you heard the empty man, let's play this game. Oh, apparently one teen is given a blowjob beneath because our teenagers are sexually active, so therefore they're also gonna die. You know, <laughs> you know, and they're you know they're there. They play this game, and you see that trailer, and you're like, oh, okay, they summon this entity. Oh God, here we go again. And you know, these kids end up dying, and most of them, all of them, save for one, is off screen. Like mm-hmm. you in the middle of the film, La Sombra, he just finds their hanging corpse. It's like shit you know um so it, it, it plays with tropes like that with the slasher but it just blends it together in like just how meaningless and you know nihilistic it really is and i think that's that's awesome yeah it's it's a great like scary way to do it as well uh, it sets the tone as you were saying i i love that they teach you the lore mm. by showing you what it does yeah because it seems as if According to the events that we see in the film, at least, something happened back in God knows how long ago up in that mountain. And then we have that corpse, which is the vessel for the empty man, if not the physical embodiment of the empty man. And then it's not until Paul is actually taken and becomes an empty man himself that it starts to spread. Yeah. And so then from that point on, you know, we jump to 2018 and then we have it. It's like, oh, it's been like... Over like almost two decades now, yeah. that they've had time to build a religion around this and do all their crazy Scientology stuff around this, and it it was jarring for me at first, just because I really enjoyed all the stuff of the '90s because it does such a good job of just teaching you of how this is how long it takes, this is the lore, everything about it. I love that they use whistles instead of bottles uh, in the actual beginning because they have that old oh, whistle that they're blowing. Yeah, yeah. So it's the same idea. It's, it's, it's the resonance that's coming from it. And mm-hmm. a bottle does a very similar sound, but I like how it, like it apply. you know, it's, it, you see, it is so cliche. We can list off movies that it resembles. It's, it's like 
The Ring mm-hmm. meets Alien meets, uh, well, Slender Man, of course, we've already mentioned, sure. Troll Man. In a way, The Exorcist. I also read that Pryor was inspired by The Exorcist yeah, I read to that do too. that. Did we read the same thing? We probably, we read, probably the read the same was thing. Was it a movie? I'm, I, it might have been a movie. I don't yeah. remember exactly where I saw it, but it was a very long yeah, interview that he might had. might have been a movie. <laughs> and, you know, you can just list all the different cliches and tropes from the movies that they're taking from. And I like that he just chose, like, the things that worked yeah. from those movies. I think oftentimes if you get a big production house that is trying to just very callously cash grab really quickly from something that is popular at the moment, they usually just choose aesthetics and that gives aesthetics a bad rep Yeah. because yeah, I mean, every movie looked like saw and had people like torturing each other there for a while afterwards, but none of them were anything like saw. None of them had the psychological nature to it or really played mind games on anybody the way that first saw movie did. Okay. Just making sure the first (laughs) saw movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and that's, you know, again, James Wan, very good at making a foundation and then seeing if other people can pick up on what he actually did. Mm. And I think this is a great example of somebody going, you can be derivative if what you're deriving is the valuable stuff (laughs) and the stuff that's very effective. Uh, As you were pointing out, I mean, you have the whole hooded figure that just resembles like any cliche thing oh it's the dude with the hook from i know what you did last summer yeah there you go (laughs) and it's doing the same things that you see pennywise and other figures do is i'm gonna run at you i'm gonna run at you because i'm I'm fast but it's also interesting because when they play not even necessarily when they play the game but at least from what this third rewatch of it what the teenagers do and what the uh other guys do in the 90s how it plays out is so much different even though they didn't initially play the game right because if you look at the teenagers we can infer by what happens to the last girl when she stabs herself to death that these kids all hung themselves but in the opening with them the girlfriend she kills the other two and then she kills herself right so it leads me to believe that if you've had at least to an extent if you have direct contact with someone who has been infected shall Mm -hmm. we say you are going to kill yourself and if the other people have not then they're then you will be killed by the person who has touched them which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because the guy who fucking picked him up in the very beginning he didn't he didn't go crazy so why did why did his girlfriend so i to an extent i think that's also something interesting since that this this game or this method to an extent i'm not even sure if it makes sense but i think that's by design Okay. Because um, it it's not really meant to make sense. Like it's just it's one of many methods of how to spread this thing around. And perhaps what's interesting there is that because they they need this stronger carrier, they need uh, La Sombra, this um, this empty man. Perhaps I am recalling it wrong, but it does at least on this third rewatch. What it does tell me is that to an extent, and again, if I'm wrong, I am more than happy to be corrected. But I do feel like that. The rituals that we see prior to that don't involve La Sombra, so the ritual in the beginning and the ritual of the teenagers, perhaps the reason they are as perhaps disjointed as they are is because they don't have that strong bandwidth. They don't have that carrier wave, which is La Sombra's empty man. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps that's why these deaths of the teenagers and of the uh, hikers in the beginning is so different because they don't they don't have the empty man. And once at the end, once he has accepted and become an, into this role as this carrier, saying this wave, perhaps when it spreads, it will be a bit more cohesive. Again, if I mean it wrong, yeah. <laughs> it's very vague. It's very tough, too, because, you know, as you rightfully point out, the inconsistencies with things, like you do have that these specific kids, you know, Amanda's friends die. 
but she's not affected. Well, she's part of the cult. Sure. And they're taught and trained in the ideology of it. And they seem to like, it's like if you're searching for the empty man, you seem to be just okay because you're like in the same mindset. Mm. So I have a a bit of a theory about this. Uh, First of all, I think that what we see in the beginning isn't actually a ritual. I think Mm. that's actually just, uh, it's just a coincidental series of events. Pure accidental. And the real infection comes from Paul coming face to face with the empty man. Mm. That's just like this thing was never supposed to be found. That's why I said alien earlier, by the way. It's like when they find the, uh, what do they call them? The the space jockey or something yeah. like that. When they find that with his chest all ripped out and stuff, you're already kind of getting an idea of like something happened to this thing. And later, of course, we see what actually yeah. happens to your chest. Well, to be fair, it wasn't meant to be found, but he does start hearing it. Yeah, sure, sure. But like that's the thing is it is a very supernatural entity and stuff, but mm-hmm. I'm saying that whoever built the mountain range kind of around it was trying to keep it away mm-hmm. from people. But he probably had just the right frequency to kind of hear this thing. Because he was committing it. he was suicide. True. He did try to kill himself. Yes. They did have the the, the at the very least he's a cutter. Yeah. So he's empty in he doesn't want to live. Mm-hmm. Or at least there has a part of him does not care about existing guilt suffering fear he's the perfect conduit for this because you can just strip out his consciousness and he's probably going to be open to the experience Mm. so he can become an empty man so you you see like i feel that that's more like that he just kind of got close to this void and the void gets inside of him yeah and then that as religious people do they take the story and they turn it into tropes and they turn it into cliche so then they're like oh you have to blow a bottle on a bridge yeah. and then the empty man will find you on the third day when all of this was they went on a bridge he heard a thing he fell down in a hole and yeah he had memories so they're also resonating with his frequencies and memories they say that they can feel his telepathy yeah and i think he's just remembering the last thing that he experienced before he essentially began emptied mm-hmm. yeah and for the rest of it, it does lose me a little bit. It does get a little confusing with the whole Lasombra story and how can you create an empty man? They don't even go into how that's even possible. I don't mind it. You know? I did not mind that at all. I'm not saying I mind it. I'm just saying that it, it, it just does feel a little to me like one of those things that's open to interpretation because they don't tell you anything. Yeah. So I'm just like, yeah, a little bit more would have been kind of just, uh, I think, enough to have some sort of semblance of a debate. But at this point, it's really just somebody's idea versus somebody else's idea it's like the spinning top in inception it's really like who knows because it didn't cut at the the part that it was actually gonna we didn't see it happen they didn't pan away with it you buy it you buy buy it it. yeah you know both theories are technically right because they put enough of a wobble in it that you could think that it could fall Mm. you know stuff like that so it's an endless debate i think that's kind of what they're going for in this one as well it's like well how do they do it like that's not the point yeah and it isn't but it does dissect what religions do because what they think they're dealing with, they don't understand. Mm. Because they're making up this whole ritual and teaching each other this namaste way of the empty man <laughs> when the empty man is far fucking worse than mm. this. Like the fact they even go full Nayar Lahotep by the end of this movie is just to show you like this shit is having fun. This thing is so happy to spread it's like everyone's so easy to get in line to do what it wanted them to do and it didn't have to try Mm. it's just sitting around (laughs) um 
If you don't mind, I actually like to get into the quote that I brought in today. Let's get into some of that philosophy. I want to hear your, your thoughts on this now. So the, the quote, I'm not going to read the whole thing again because it is very long, but essentially what is being said here, this is uh, from an article called Beneath Nihilism, the Phenomenological Foundations of Meaning. So anybody who isn't aware, phenomenology is a sort of, it's like a mix of philosophy and psychology. And so it's trying to make philosophy and especially the study of our experiences, our conscious experiences, a little bit more scientific because it's hard. It's very subjective to say how we experience the world and, and reality, but we can at least distill it down to language that is universal. So say if we want to talk about fear, since that's very you know relevant for horror in general, it's not so much about what scares us, so you know, not comparing whether it's dogs or heights or people or knives. It, it's more about that feeling in the pit of your stomach and how the blood rushes out of your fingertips and your eyes really, like the light seems really bright because your eyes have dilated. How we know that chill down our spine and we kind of want to throw up for the fight or flight. Our knees start shaking. Our breathing starts to get a bit haggard. I can describe fear to you. And we all go like, yeah, that, I've felt that at least at some point. And if you haven't, I don't know if I'm happy for you or not, actually. <laughs> I was going to say I'm happier for you, but I don't know. It's a pretty cool feeling. So uh, it's, it's kind of useful <laughs> to know that feeling. But So that's just one example. Most of phenomenology, especially early on, was more about literal our physical. It's also about the body, by the way. It's really how our, our body experiences reality. So... So, you know, I am sitting across from you at about a meter's distance. And what does it mean to have this microphone between us, cutting us off? And there's also the three-dimensional scape around it. But if I look at the microphone, I'm in a three-dimensional world, but I see a two-dimensional image. You know, you see the outlines cut out. But we know that I can put my hands around it and I can breach into your side of it or I'm behind it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... It's really overthinking the simple things of existence just to kind of think about how can we talk about this the same way we talk about other philosophical things because it's very useful to understand them. Same when it comes to talking about emotions. How does our body respond to, responding to that? What, For one, we can also really figure out what sort of triggers exist a little bit better and what are universally, you know, terrifying things, for instance. You know, what, what, what do... What do people always cite mm. as part of this? So, again, taking the subjective out of it, but it does help us at least create a laundry list of possibilities. And so it's useful in discussions on aesthetics or on filmmaking because if you can discuss the objective part of it, it allows you to create more database on the subjective, even if it doesn't apply to every single person. We know that these things are scary with like a capital S, sure. even if it doesn't scare you, basically. Yeah. So this particular quote um, coming from the, oh, I, I did not mention the author, and that's from David E. Shainer. It's from 1987, which, yeah, it's a good year. Uh, I hear that that was a very good year for people, myself included. Um, also Hellraiser, right? hell yeah. Anyway. Uh, hold up, Predator. <laughs> oh, another really good one. There you go, 87, very good year. What he's talking about, he says, for instance, that Anything can be stripped down to nothingness in the context of nothingness, like the big nothingness. The fact of, like, just quickly imagine what it's like to have nothing. Mm. That's nothing. The nothingness. The very thought of there being nothing. 
there's a paradox there, of course, because if you can think about it, then there's something, and therefore it's not nothing. So you have to really start thinking and really straining your brain more and more to get closer to that nothing, right? And what he's getting at, though, is that means that anything political, ethical, religious, any sort of preconception, if it can be stripped away into absolutely nothing, is built upon so many things to make them what they are, but at their heart, they're just empty, there's nothing there. It's, it's vapid. Sure. Because it's all made up. And it's not to say it's made up in our sense of saying you're being lied to, but it's really like even if your deity exists, even if you are right within your religion, nihilism would teach that it's futile. Because even beyond the existence of your deity, there's nothing. Nothingness is kind of the only guarantee there was nothing before the universe started so we know that the possibility for nothing is there but we also know that the universe cannot have nothingness because it is something the mere fact that it expands you know uh it looks like nothing you know we just think of black yeah. just just a black void okay so nothing in the universe is you take away the stars right yeah but that's not how it works because there's still whatever physical matter and antimatter and all that sort of stuff. Those are some things on a conceptual level. So nothingness in, in this, this case is really, it's so pure. And he's trying to say that in most discussions in these philosophies, especially if you're going to get into the realm of colloquialisms, in the realm of cliché, and especially the realm of how these people are talking in The Empty Man, yeah. it's evil, right? Or at the very least, it's disturbing. Mm. It's negative. We think of nothing. We think, You know, you ever use it as an insult? You're such a nihilist. No. Do you ever hear people do it? No. Um, you're, you're around so many nice people. I like that. No, no one uses that. We just <laughs> call them actual names. Fair enough. I, I've heard it used, but maybe those are people who are big Lebowski fans. Yeah, but that yeah. <laughs> but still, I, I've had it thrown around, and uh, especially in the '90s, it was a pretty big thing because there was a lot of counterculture that really went towards nihilism just to kind of make sense of the fact that everybody just seemed happy, even though the world was just falling apart around them. Mm. Hmm, sounds familiar. Um, and so, you know, it's very goth-oriented stuff, and it was a great way to undercut what those people were saying. But the people who were either discussing nihilism as a philosophy, as like an Eastern Buddhist philosophy, or the people who were discussing it in a counterculture kind of way, were just trying to point out what does it matter. And what does it matter doesn't mean, fuck it. Because that's, that's Paul. Mm. Paul tried to kill himself. Amanda's a goth girl. Fuck it. Oh, what was me? We see all of her books and stuff. And even pre-Empty Man, she's just like, they don't understand me. Oh, the Empty Man. I get it. The nothingness. She's that vapid, empty yeah. person as well. Real, true nothingness, according to Shainer, has the possibility and potentiality to change and for change. And that is a very interesting, almost optimistic look at it. Mm. That if, and that's really what we get in true nihilism from Eastern nihilism. That if you can strip away all of these preconceived notions, this... Look at gender, for instance. Like, you are a man. You, you are because you're told. You perform as a man because you're told this way. I perform as a man because I'm told that way. We are now in an era where people are no longer 
just exploring it within themselves quietly at home or even somewhat louder in public. Sure. They're actively just telling each other how much that is a preconceived thing given to you and you go be yourself. That's usually what the actual message is. It's not so much you are trans because that's like the exact same thing. If I were to try to convince you that you're not a man, that's just, you know, that's an individual experience that somebody might have. Yeah, yeah. But the heart of it is be you, but don't be you according to what your parents want or what society wants from you. Be you for what you want. Yeah. Or in what you are, learn what you are and, only through that stripping away and finding the nothingness in what's told to you and finding the heart of the abyss, if you want to use the cliche, they say the abyss looks back. What that really kind of means is when you look into the void, into nothing, it does look back at you and you start to understand it, as I mentioned before. Yep. Now, again, cishet white guy idea of that is like, oh, fuck, <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> That means I don't have an identity anymore because they don't know what to do because they realize that a lot of what they've been taught is really just perpetuating things that are standards. What does it mean to be a man? Is it just we have a penis and we have different musculature than women, deeper voices, more body hair? What is it? Or is it the ethics code of you know chivalry and holding a door open for a woman and being there as a father? And That is an individual subjective thing really yeah but there are enough people in the world who just adhere to these things and have never questioned whether they think that way because they think that way or if they think that way because it's what they know yeah so this is where we get into the nothingness if i were to strip it away from you it's a shock it's too much all of us have everything even even myself who's more rebellious and, and trying to really strip that away there's just too much to strip away if i were to be stripped down to nothing I don't know how I would deal with it. Mm. But still, glimpses into that void, the look into that void, into that nothingness, is a very liberating feeling. Just because if you can accept it and you can experience extra... I get It's weird. Like, you know, it's so hard to talk about because the paradox of talking about nothing, yeah. you immediately make it something. Yeah. But it's that nothingness is a blank slate. So it leads to the possibility for anything, for you to change into to whatever. And I find that that is a lot of the philosophy that's in The Empty Man. And it infuriated me that they didn't actually use that philosophy. But then when I, you know, the, the more it went on, the more I realized it is kind of making this point. But it didn't, I like it to be a little bit more blatant. I think the movie's being a little too smart and safe in that mm -hmm. respect of just using something. And it brings in a question from my end as well, of just like how much or how, how deep into that did you go yourself with your research? Not to make a claim that anybody did or didn't. It's just more, I don't know. Well, I don't, I think your reading of it, that idea of change from at least that quote that you read, is a very optimistic reading of it. And, and that's good. Mm -hmm. I think in context of the film, that doesn't really apply because they're not interested in optimism at the end. No, uh, no, sure, surely not. Um, I guess I, I'm just wanting to get more into the actual philosophies that sure. are the backbone of it. Yeah. No, this is a very aggressive, antagonistic entity that they're dealing with. However, I will say that I think that a good thing to point out is that we have the empty man that they say is this entity that exists between 
the realms yeah. you know, of reality and unreality, basically. Yeah. So that doesn't mean the nothingness is actually a bad thing. It's just by being somewhere in the middle, you are an agent of chaos. Yes, but by the empty man coming forth into our world, it's probably not a great thing either. Well, let me look at it this way. It's imagine a reality of nothingness and you are you can't be an entity of nothingness, I suppose, because there's nothing. Well, is it nothingness or is it chaos? I'm going to say nothingness in this case. Okay. Because I'm, I'll, I have an idea with the, the chaos. From the perspective of nothing, is nothing bad? I suppose not. Just There's is, nothing. right? Well, it's like, what is it? It's like from Finding Nemo when he says, you want nothing to ever happen to Nemo, but if by wanting nothing to ever happen to him, nothing will ever happen. Or it's like something will never happen to him, something like that. It's true, but you still need Nemo for that. And then you still have a negative thing, a connotation for Nemo. So I'm talking about nothingness. Just, just not not thinking about versus our reality. Sure. Just that it exists. Then I suppose having nothing is not a bad thing. It's not negative, right? Yeah, it, it simply is. Simply is. If you have that reality and you have our reality, which simply is and has within it, it's manifested reality, good, evil, all these different concepts... Now we think about turning it into nothingness. Mm-hmm. It becomes bad, doesn't it? Because you're taking away what we have. Yeah. Now we take an entity like the empty man who sits between the two and he can freely walk within nothingness and just not exist comfortably. And he can freely manifest and come into our world and just undo things. Mm. Chaos. He is a paradox. And by being a paradox, he's destructive. Yeah. So he's undoing everything. Also means he can bring reality into the nothingness. Nothing. Yeah. So he can undo either one in either direction. Yeah, but I imagine by undoing our reality, it's just making it into what he's already got. Or anything. If you make it into anything, it doesn't even have to be in, in a concept that we understand. Just by the sure. mere fact that he steps into nothingness, he fucks it up. Yeah. And so that's where I feel like the empty man is a more antagonistic figure than nothingness. So that's where my reading of this this idea of nothingness comes into play because I loved that was what they really got with me. It's like this is where it is. This is where your your cliches and stuff work because it's not about the nothing. It's about the empty man yeah. who is this agent of chaos. But their cliches about this. Why would you want it? Essentially, there's no real rhyme or reason to anybody being accepting of the empty man and thinking that he's going to lead them into anything. He's there to raise everything and to bring it down and probably just laughing the whole way through. But who's to say the cultists also don't want that? But that's the well, they that they themselves like just the philosophies that they bring in all link back to nihilism. And so they're looking for some sort of peace and truth. You know, they're very peaceful. But about what if it their well. peace is the nothingness? Because at least what I got from but Stephen, that's the nothingness. But they what they don't understand is that they're talking to an agent of chaos. Yeah, fair. So yeah. they believe and they they have faith. Let's even put they have faith in the fact that the empty man will bring upon the peaceful nothingness. Mm. Who's to say he's not just going to get you close to it to undo everything over and over? And over again. Yeah. This yeah. You see how it functions. You see how it spreads like a virus. I can't say any virus has ever had a very positive uh, connotation to it. But they're just like, yeah, spread this shit like a virus. And I, I The only viral that I like to spread is um, a marketing campaign. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Um, but I, I just... 
curious, like, do you get where, I, where I'm coming yeah, from? Yeah, no, I get it. There's a, there's a clear difference between what is the nothing, and the nothing itself isn't bad, but the empty man exists between the nothing and our reality. And it's not that nothing is bad, it's that the empty man, as a be as a entity of untold ability and power, it has its own agenda. We can argue the merits of what that agenda is. Maybe it wants mm-hmm. to turn our reality into nothing and then just boof. Or maybe it has more sinister connotations. But I think that is what fits into that cosmic core and that Lovecraftian mythos is that they don't really break down what it wants because nobody on our reality can fathom what that thing wants. All they know is that, hey, this uh, James Badgedale, James LaSombra, you are going to be our carrier wave. And then we hope, yeah, hope, cross our fingers, hope, die. Maybe not the die part, maybe probably the die part. Is that when the being comes forth, we get the nothingness. But they don't know that. And that's where I understand what you're saying, where it's like, okay, they are putting their hopes and they're still putting human finite thought onto something that they truly know nothing about other than they are praising it, they are welcoming it, but they don't really know what they are welcoming. And I, and now, okay, I see what you're saying because it fits within, oh, well, I wanted to see what happens to these cultists when they get what they want. Mm-hmm. But the film is interested in that. It's interested no. in the uh, La Sombra and that journey through madness and him realizing that he is nothing and his nothing, in, in his case, the nothing is bad because there was nothing ever to begin with. And you could argue that nothing, in his case, nothing is bad because there was nothing there to begin with. And maybe one could argue that's good, but it's really not because it just, he has no control over his life. He is nothing, and he is this thing. I feel like I'm talking to repetition. Wonder <laughs> <laughs> now. I'm following you completely, but I'm just like it's, I, y- y- y'all can't see us right now. But I'm smiling like ear to ear, and it's not because you're losing your way. You're you're on a really good path there and a good track, and you're getting it. But you see how difficult it is to really like hold yeah. on to this. And language doesn't do us any services with this stuff because. Because of our concepts of things like good and bad and yeah. and existence and non-existence. When you factor in those things, it's like it, it really starts to complicate how we talk about things. It's the Matrix all over again. It's when Morpheus <laughs> – no, but like it's funny. It's when Morpheus tells Neo, he's like, you know, the machines can punch through walls. They can dodge bullets. But at the core of it, you're better than them because you're human. You've got emotions, and that shit complicates the algorithm. Mm-hmm. You're not, not a computer. Thing. Exactly. exactly. You, yeah. Your brain is a better computer than any computer could ever be. So imagine, do what you want. Yeah. Just imagine some shit, man. Yeah. You know, and and do it freely. Untether yourself from the fact that somebody told you that you can't imagine big things. Yeah. And in this case. I guess why it tickles me so much is it gets back to the point of my podcast. And for me, so let's get back to beauty on this. My feeling of the beauty of this film is this conversation Mm. because I'm bringing in the philosophies that they've based a lot of this on, you know, I'm sure if there was a bibliography at the end of the film, I would be like, Reddit, 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 you know? And Mm. to my point is that it's a really difficult conversation to have. And yet, did you find the movie easy to follow when you watched it? Up until the very end, I did get a bit confused on a second watch and maybe a brief skim of Wikipedia. It totally clicked. But that's on a narrative, like, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. But did you follow it along in that you followed the feelings that you were going through in the film? So, for instance, like, you know how you felt when you watched it, right? Did you Mm -hmm. feel things? So by the end of the film, when La Sombra is being, you know, worshipped and stuff, you had an emotion, I take it. Yeah. There's a response there. And because a bad movie, 
especially on this aesthetic level and, and using this sort of material, you would have gone, okay. Yeah. But we felt things. I felt things at the very least. And yeah. whether they were frustration or they were like, oh, God, that sublime kind of overpowering like this is fucked mm. kind of feeling. The fact that we're feeling things, that's the beauty of this is that film has that language in, in sound and in visuals that text is there. What they say is there. And we are dissecting like cliches and stuff because they flat out say it. So yeah, we can only yeah. use what they're giving us. But, you know, this is me throwing in a language based philosophy just to kind of teach anybody who's listening a little bit of what that might mean. So if you hear these sorts of things, try to really filter out what was cliche, what was really being said. And if what was really being said doesn't match what they said, they're probably using it wrong. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, just because someone uses a quote that sounds profound, it doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. Please sure. really, you know, think for yourselves a little bit and do the research. But beyond all of that, everything we were just talking about and that confusion that we were feeling, didn't it kind of feel like when we were watching the movie? Mm-hmm. That's the thing. It's that grasping at straws and figuring it out and knowing that there's something bigger than you. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not like on a spiritual level, it's just this whole, so small yeah, <laughs> you know? I mean, but that is that that's ultimately like I think one of the points of Lovecraft's work is how small you are compared to the rest. Take you can't really take out the racist connotations, but for a moment, take out the racist connotation is that how tiny you are compared to these mm. monolithic beings. And at the end of the film, even though you, I, I mean, you technically do see the empty man, I suppose, um, but at the end, you know, La Sombra is very small. He is. Ultimately, he's a cog in a greater machine that he never had control of in the first place. And when it's his time, it's his time. And he is tiny. He, he I mean, finding out that at the end, three, the last three days of your life were actually the first three days of your life. And this is all you were meant for. This is all you'll ever be. That's tiny. That's that's crushing because you have nothing to do. You can't you, you can't do anything about that. And one could say he, you could have tried to fight it, but he did. He didn't succeed. So it's like, and that's not to say people should give up or anything like that. But like, for him, it's he is he is minuscule compared to the machine that it took to get him to that place. And that is that is what's probably more terrifying than anything, is that you can have these memories, you can have all of this, these lives, your your mistakes, your greatest accomplishments, and then to find out that. At the old, at the end of it all, it was nothing you ever actually did. It was just you on a railroad track the whole way through. That's I think that's crushing. And personally speaking, I don't know if I felt that at the end of any of the three rewatches, but I did feel, damn, that's bleak. <laughs> but mm-hmm. like, not like a that sucks, but like, sucks to be you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I. What I also love about this is I love how you're going straight into how small he is in comparison to this entire plot around him and everything. And yet the image that we see is him being worshipped. Yeah. And he's still so pathetically small. And he's nothing. And he's you, nothing. Yeah, he's nothing. <laughs> I mean, I mean, oh, you could probably argue at that point he's probably nothing. And it's the empty man be like, it's me, motherfucker. You know, but it, it is. Yeah, he's being worshipped. And it's like this means to... The entity and to to the entity and to La Sombra itself, it's probably it means nothing to them, you yeah. know. But yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> and that's a very powerful statement and ending to have in a film like this that we're so used to really coming face to face with that 
monolith, as mm. you put it. Normally, we would see like in a you know the was it Mouth of Madness in the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, okay. yeah. I always because you know, there's a mountains of madness uh, in the Mouth of Madness. You know, you see his mania, and you you get a glimpse of just how overpowering what's going on is. You know, the, these stories, especially the Lovecraftian versions of these stories, bank on talking about the thing for that the entire thing, and then they just have like one two word sentence or something that makes you go damn Uh, you just feel it for a second without even knowing what they just saw but you're like i understand and in this movie it's just and then you hear you just feel that void and you're like man somehow that's more powerful sometimes you got that christopher young score sees the credits roll yes Uh, have you listened to it i haven't listened i mean i listened to it all the way through but i haven't listened to it just in isolation but i will Mm -hmm. in fact okay I, i we can briefly talk about the music in the film but then i think we're going to need wrap to it wrap up. it up unless you have some other points, uh, but just for time's sake, I yep. don't want to make this a three hour thing. Uh, we can always come back to it another time, but yeah, with the music, I am so impressed with it and seeing who made it as well. I'm a huge Lustmord fan. So I love his work. He makes ambient, dark ambient oh. music, if you will, more soundscape. So sure. it's the kind of stuff you can really just listen to while you're writing or focusing on something else. And it's spooky shit. Cause you fill up oh, films. He records sounds from caves, caverns, valleys, mm. just anywhere that he can get like a high resonant frequency and just mess around with it, you mm. know, bat sounds, all kinds of stuff. And then you have him doing most of the score throughout the film. And anytime you get music, who better than Christopher Young to fuck you up a little bit in your head? I the sinister soundtrack still just like sticks in my head. I have I have him to thank for that. He I did <laughs> I made a film project a few years ago for school and he brought me onto that soundtrack and I'm like I'm gonna uh, tempt this to it and I didn't get to use the film but I or no maybe I did maybe I did for the trailer not the actual uh, short film for a different film I got to use it and it was like yeah it was awesome that's a great score but also Hellraiser yeah exactly yes oh Hellraiser two is mm. a immaculate. Yeah, it's, there. Seuss actually thought last time when she watched it, she was like, "Why does this movie sound like it's uh, it's she's she's played it's an old timey horror movie?" I'm like, "I can kind of see that." And then I told her, you know, the Christopher Young, the guy who did along well, I didn't know less more, but mm-hmm. he did uh, the Hellraiser two score. She's like, "Oh, that makes sense because the Hellraiser two score it sounds like it's uh like a like a modern version of um." Uh, the the uh, Universal Monsters. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's got very well. operatic. Yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> it's very good. It's, it's, I actually listened to it on the way here and it was dark. And that might have added to the fact that this cityscape is kind of spooky at night. But, you know, uh-huh. I'll leave my house no more. So <laughs> <laughs> Amsterdam is, is not the most welcoming place at night. No. Oh, shit. Um, no. Damn. I, well, I, I mean, kidding. visually. Oh. <laughs> it's, 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 very, it's very dank sometimes and it's very urban and kind of ripped apart in the area that we're lived in. So mm. it's a little underdeveloped. But. Uh, you know, it's also something about like the glow of the street lights and mm. it's very quiet around here. You know, you're in Amsterdam and it's quiet, so it just kind of like, hello, yeah. <laughs> where is everybody? Am I going to die? Yeah, am I <laughs> in a horror movie now? This is what's going to happen to me now. But yeah, combining Lustmord and Christopher Young and making them work together is a genius move yeah. and a pretty bold move, I have to say, mm. for somebody to be making their first major feature film and then you managed to get these two juggernauts of the audio realm Mm. to come in probably for peanuts i can imagine (laughs) it being an indie film i mean you even have steven root as well so it's like how do you get these people into this film 
I will say he was a bit of the odd one out since everybody else was just like cast really well and were unknown names. I think he works perfectly. I, well, I like him in it. You can, t- I, I, at least for the casting wise, James Badge Dale and maybe more so Stephen Root, but those two, it's probably are those two are the guys who probably made most of the money off the film because mm-hmm. I've seen them elsewhere. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really like, he really sold because he was in Get Out, he really sold that just like that insane preacher sort of new age preaching that new age medicine yeah, new he's yeah. like the nothing like he says like the nothingness no he's really good at, and the, you see when his eyes wide you can't you just can't see him he's like yeah you know he's, he's really good so for the like two three minutes he's in the film i i think it's great i did not i didn't feel taken out by him at all I guess I've just seen him in so many things. I was like, oh, I didn't recognize anybody in this movie. You know, if you recognize certain individuals already, then if you have more famous actors in it, maybe it doesn't hit as much. You're probably just like, hey, they're also in it as well. Mm. But for me, just seeing the one celebrity in my eyes, I was like, oh, wow. I was just kind of surprised to see a familiar face when everybody else was a little new to me. But it didn't take me out of the film. It just is something that I will probably appreciate more and repeat viewings than on my initial viewing yeah but still uh yeah the, very impressive who all they managed to work with on this film and uh they're all good at what they do so yeah. they gave them good work i'm always really happy to see that when creatives are just hey yeah i want to do it i like what you're doing and this is what we're going to do and you're going to get the same kind of work and whoo Especially when it comes to the soundtrack in this movie. It's really good. It's probably one of the most effective parts of the film is you're seeing simple imagery and you just have this very subtle drone in the background that you probably don't even notice at first. Or it's like wind, like a wind tunnel. And you don't know if it's a sound effect or if it's the score Hmm. because they bleed in and out of each other constantly, which perfect if you want to talk about concepts like something like emptiness is you don't really know if it's there or not. So, yeah. No, really cool. Really cool stuff. Really good score. I don't know if there's anything else in your notes that you uh, wanted to discuss before we wrap up. No, I uh, I think that's it. Like, yeah, no. It's a, it's a really good film. Uh, I'm pretty sure I put it on my best, one of my best films or favorite films of 2021. Technically, it's 2020 film, but I'm going to call it 2021 because that's when people actually really saw it, you mm-hmm. know, with wide eyes. Um yeah, it is. It is one of my favorite horror movies of last of last year, and you know what? I could probably see it being one of my favorite horror movies of this decade and potentially of all time. Ooh. Might take might might take a while, oh. you know. But there's also an ass ton of movies out there, you know. It's oh still, god, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it still has to compete with uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which. You're wearing uh, the shirt. Wearing the shirt. I love it so much. Oh, so it's good. so good. <laughs> well then. Uh, I think we can wrap up nicely. So this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including 28 Days Later, hosted by Sophie and Hannah Day, (laughs) XOXO Horror, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or just horror in general, you can find me on Twitter, which is at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, which is shockaholic.org. But dear listeners, I would like to know 
What are your thoughts on The Empty Man? If you want to reach out and tell me a little bit about what you thought of the film or what you thought of this episode, go to Twitter at BeautyHorrorPod. You can go to email BeautyOfHorrorPod at gmail.com or you can go anywhere, uh, Facebook, Instagram as well, BeautyHorrorPod, just like on Twitter. But for now, I want to thank you again, Max, for sitting down with me, literally sitting down (laughs) with me in a room to talk about this movie and uh, thank you for bringing it to my attention as well. I had heard of it, but it was really your, you know, push. I was like, yo, 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 you got to spread. I got to spread it, spread it around. It's you an did. itch you can't scratch. You did spread it. Yes, you did. Where can everybody find you if they want to see you kind of talk about movies and chilling out and stuff? Uh, for the most part, if you want to hear me tell you how Ghostface is an ineffectual killer, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> uh, my user, my at is uh, ODST Spartan. Um, there's the O, the D, the S, the T is uh, capitalized, and then the rest is Spartan, as in it's a Halo thing. Um, but you can just look <laughs> up my name, and you'll see a cross. Because recently, I've been watching the Hammer horror films, and holy shit, those are they vary in quality. But Peter Cushing is mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. Anyways, but uh, yeah, Max O'Darian uh, on Twitter, and uh, I also have an email. But you know, I. I I'm a student, so like, don't don't email me, please. <laughs> <laughs> Leave him alone, but don't go. De- definitely check out Max on the socials and just hang out. You know, I know that you love talking to people, and, and you know, if you're looking for some good just film conversations in general, Max is ready to go. So you know, give him a little bit of love, and of course, thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye.